Welcome to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer of short stories and novellas that cannot be contained within a single genre. His work has been published in over 200 anthologies, as well as being adapted for audio drama. He's joining me today to discuss his recent work, The Naughty Corner, as well as his upcoming first full-length novel, Chasing the Dragon. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Mark Taus. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, Vince. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan of the show of late, and I'm excited. Well, thank you for joining me on this 12th day of January 2024. I had first heard about your work when I had Damon Manx on the show, because I know you collaborated with him on Arcranium. So when I came across your latest work, The Naughty Corner, I had to check it out. And what I found were three tales that begin with violence and depravity, an otherworldly being, and a depiction of supernatural slavery. So, very interested in discussing the inspiration behind these well-crafted stories. Thanks, Vince. Yeah, I'm pretty open, so I'll be as detailed as possible without giving the plot away to these stories. But each one, as you know, is very unique, but they were all a lot of fun to write, for sure. Yes, and I will try to refrain from letting my really unbridled curiosity <laughs> lead you astray into spoiler territory. <laughs> I think the stories are so out there, so yeah. bizarre, that I don't even think that would help the reader, to be honest with you. <laughs> I don't think anything could prepare them. Load off my chest. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. Well, so the first story, entitled The Generation Games, is about population control and... They have mandated that all individuals be euthanized by injection on their 70th birthday unless they agree to participate in a contest that resembles the Hunger Games, hence the title, The Generation Games. The victors of this contest are awarded a pass to Mars, a newly colonized planet with ample space, which is something that they're in reality talking about right now. However, only the affluent can afford this opportunity, leading to the desperation to participate in these televised events. There is 
An inherent fear of death within most everyone, not necessarily everyone, but as far as we know, humans are the only species aware of their own impending death, which leads to angst, much like the proverbial midlife crisis. What do you think is a healthy way to deal with the strong instinct for self-preservation when our self-aware consciousness identifies it as a losing battle? You see, this is what I love about this podcast, Vince. <laughs> Zero small talk. <laughs> it's like, right, let's get into your head. Let's find out what really makes you tick. Uh-huh. I listened to the one with Keelan Patrick Burke, Damon as well, and Ruth. And I just love that aspect of the show. It's like, you know, not what is the first book you picked up or how'd you get into writing? It's like, Towsy, you're going to die. What are you going to do about it? You know, um, so it, what a first question, you know, but anyway, sorry. Look, I think it's just having a level of acceptance about it. There's nothing you can do to step off that conveyor belt. And for me, as I mentioned in the sort of prelude to this, having a sense of humor about life, about day-to-day situations is really what keeps me ticking. If you get caught up too much in those thoughts of morality and darkness, it's too heavy. And that's why I generally have a thread of humor running through all of my stories. But I think all you can do is look after yourself as best you can. The one thing I fear more than death is losing cognitive function, losing the ability to think, to create. That is the one that scares me to death, literally. So anything I can do to keep my mind active is very important for me. My dad's got Alzheimer's. His deterioration has been very, very quick. So, you know, I know I'm going to die. That's as certain as taxes. But what can I do to try and maintain longevity, to keep my life full of things that I enjoy doing, to keep the hunger there, which I think is sometimes part of the battle, post-retirement, etc. You know, when you've had your head in the sand for so long, it's like, what do I do with myself now? There's a tendency just to rot slowly away. But for me, writing is something that I've discovered that is going to keep me going for a long time, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny. My fear was loss of independence, but you bring up, you know, your ability to create. It's like, yeah, even if you do lose your independence, you know, even if you're in the deepest, darkest nursing home, as long as you can do something creative, I think you could still enjoy life. Yeah. Imagination is totally freeing. I mean, how many situations have you been in when you've had to rely on your imagination to carry you through in times of trauma or just having that ability to, you know, create stories in your head and then potentially put them onto paper is just a get-out-of-jail-free card, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, these events in the story are sponsored by a company called Regenovate, which produces a serum purported to maintain youth. And I was wondering if this was inspired at all by, you know, something like testosterone replacement therapy, maybe fillers, Botox, anything like that. Can you uh, expand a little bit on the concept of Regenovate? And uh, is it a real thing that you've invested in? (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't have any experience of um, being a bioscientist or anything along those lines. Um, I did do a little bit of research. But the beauty of fiction, especially writing something 20, 30 years from the current point in time, is that you can cheat a little bit, you know. But for me, it was really the message of the story is really highlighting corporate greed, you know, the the contrasting ugliness involved in a product that is there to or supposed to enhance beauty and turn back time. So 
I think that's just the sign of the time. It's just something I wanted to explore within the story, really. Well, one aspect of the story highlights how rational or sometimes irrational people behave when facing matters of life and death, which can sometimes, actually more often than not, be undignified. So what dynamics did you aim to showcase in the story that influenced the way you wrote the behavior of the characters once they were deeply entrenched in the game? Because it kind of started off slow and then worked its way up. Yeah, I think in the same way that you're interested in getting to the, the crooks of people, what makes them tick, I'm very interested in peeling back the layers, stripping them bare and finding out what really lies behind that mask. And that's what I'm always trying to do with any interaction I have with people on the street who take <laughs> a couple of steps back because I don't talk about the weather. I talk about, you know, I'm trying to find out, you know, what is the thing that lights the fire underneath them, which can mm. be quite confronting for people. But I'm always interested to find out that sort of fight or flight response when it comes down to it, when the shit hits the fan. Without the bravado, take all the gloss away, how will people react? So that was something I really wanted to explore in that story. And each character is so unique and obviously a product of their life, their upbringing today. But the most fun to explore was James, the fool, um, or baby James, as the rest of the group <laughs> fondly referred to him as, as the story mm. developed. You know, take a guy who's been handed everything on a plate and then essentially, you know, strip down his layers and see really what the man is about, what's truly inside him. And I love that. And that's the way I approach every interaction. I want to find out, okay, you've got the smile, you've got the haircut, whatever, but, you know, that's not interesting. What's interesting to me is what makes you tick. What are the triggers? How do you behave in certain situations? What are your motivations? What inspires you? So, Yeah. Well, the extreme violence in your story was a major draw for the viewers that uh, they were broadcasting this to, I believe. Was it pay-per-view? I can't remember. No, it wasn't. It was oh, just, okay. just like YouTube or something along those lines. Yeah, but live. Yeah. 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 Well, in it, events that would typically cause PTSD in the average person were consumed on primetime TV as casually as a sitcom. And there is a huge viewership for reality TV that showcases people's tumultuous personal lives, as well as for true crime stories that reveal the horrific outcomes of criminal acts. And it seems that people are fascinated by watching others fail at love or succumb to violence. So what do you think drives this desire? <laughs> it's, it's such an interesting <laughs> question, isn't it? Because I'm victim of that myself at times. Yeah. And it's easy to get hooked into as well. I think it's just escapism. I think it's a distraction from, in many cases, someone's own life, their woes. Mm -hmm. But I find it interesting that how quickly things have developed now and how numb we are to certain things that a few years ago would have shocked us. So I think there's an increased appetite for... <laughs> well, something along the lines potentially leading up to the generation games. Who knows? You know, who knows where we're going to be in 20, 30 years in terms of sort of reality or live TV. But the one thing I thought about when I wrote the generation games is that it didn't feel too far from where we are. And that's horrifying in a way, <laughs> you know, because I can mm -hmm. see that happening, you know, mm -hmm. in the way that extreme horror has taken a turn. 
we're not too far away. It's a few small steps, you know, but mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. My wife, she likes to watch both, you know, true crime and what I like to refer to as trash TV, like 90 Day Fiance and, and those kind of shows. <laughs> and she's yeah. a super intelligent woman, master's degree in psychology. So she was like, I think the reason I like to watch it is because it makes me feel good about my own life. <laughs> That's exactly it. That's exactly right. Yeah. See, this is the draw, isn't it? That's the draw. Yeah. As opposed to Facebook, where you're constantly trying to, you know, rise to expectations, watching people fail mm -hmm. gives you a little bit of a high. There's a British show called EastEnders in the UK. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but there isn't a character in that. It's a soap opera. can't remember where it's set. I think it might be Manchester or something. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's actually um, down south in London. But every single person is traumatized or depressed. And, but it's got a, such a huge following for that reason that it gives people a feeling that actually my life's not so bad in comparison. I've got an element yeah. of control about this, you know? Uh -huh. I'm doing something right. And I think that's the draw. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, I don't know how true true TV is. I mean, it seems like it's almost like it's scripted improv, like they have kind of a trajectory that uh, they want the story to take. And then they just leave it up to the actors to all right, get from point A to point B, however you would if you were living this in real life. I don't know. Agreed. I mean, I must admit, my wife is the same. She's the most intelligent person I know. But when I find her drawn towards those kind of shows, I can't help but judge there is this element of judgment. And I try and <laughs> detach myself from that because I know in a similar uh, process, you know, that I think it gives someone an element of control, you know, because in life, you often feel like you're free falling, directionless. Mm -hmm. So I think anything that sort of nudges you or sort of gives you a pat on the back to say, actually, yeah, you're doing all right. You know, there's no mm -hmm. rule book for this life. You're doing all right. Anything like that, I think people are definitely drawn to. Yeah. And with the true crime, either she's got morbid curiosity like I do, or she's trying to kill me. One of the two. <laughs> no, you know what? That's really odd because my <laughs> wife is exactly the same way, obsessed with true crime. You know, audio books, paperbacks. She had at one point a collection of 200, 300 books on true crime. I mean, everything from, you know, Ed Gein to Fred and Rosemary West is crazy. But at the same time, she can't watch a horror film. If I say, sit down, let's watch this movie together. And within two minutes, she knows it's a ghost story, a horror film. She can't do it. She'll be out the door slamming it behind her. It's so odd. I find mm -hmm. that pretty crazy because reality is much, much more terrifying than fiction. Mm -hmm. We all know that. Yeah. I know people like the same as your wife, but my wife, she does like horror movies. That's one of our things is uh, we like to watch horror movies. So she's <laughs> fictional oh, you got, or you're real. You're a match made in heaven. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I <was> jealous. <laughs> yeah. She doesn't like reading novels, though. So That's so interesting. My wife is, there's so many sort of parallels because my wife is not into fiction at all. She can't read it. That's crazy. Really? Yeah. 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 Interesting. Well, there is a greedy corporation facilitating and broadcasting these events led by a greedy CEO, along with lower level employees who are equally corrupt and avaricious. One of them, at least just a straight up slob. <laughs> so yeah. uh, to me, and this is probably not going to be a popular opinion, but to me, this scenario brings to mind MMA fighting. And I'm not saying that extreme fighting championships, you know, showcasing skilled martial artists battling it out to where they are getting like, you know, pretty brutal with each other is inherently bad. 
But the way it's conducted with all the pre-fight shit talking and narcissistic behavior, it just like the whole thing turns me off. I actually probably would watch it if it wasn't for that fact. And I would argue that when you strip away the discipline and honor of martial arts, it just becomes a form of human cockfighting. And by cockfighting, I mean like, you know, the yeah. <laughs> the, <laughs> the feathered thing, not the... Uh, yeah, that, that's... Well, that, thing. That, that could be next. That could be the yeah, next story. Yeah, I next mean, novella. <laughs> just be beating each other around with their erect. I, I don't know how you train for something like that. But <laughs> I don't really know. <laughs> Lifting weights. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, that's a whole new ball game, isn't it? Well, pardon the pun, but yeah. Anyway, cross. Sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think we're watching a version of your story played out on uh, MMA championships? <laughs> that uh that a lot of times are on pay-per-view <laughs> hey we had the bum fights do you remember the the trend of the bum fights oh yeah that, that was illegal yeah. though was it not yeah it definitely yeah. was but i'm the same regards sort of mma cage fighting now i do actually watch a lot of the fights because that sort of mix of martial arts coming together is really intriguing for me I've got a black belt in Shotokan Karate, so I've got like a little bit of vested interest. I haven't practiced for so bloody long, but mm. if someone, you know, has flair and style, I, I just love watching them. I really do. But mm. the shit talking that goes on, you know, getting into their heads, their personal lives, you know, sort of blasting their mothers, their children, it's just like, yeah. I can't take any part in that at all. Um, but the problem is, I mean, we know that that's encouraged by the corporate bosses that's part of the build-up that's what sells tickets you know people invest in this hatred uh -huh. the resentment that these fighters put out on screen yeah. but i can just imagine them at the end of the fight the way they hug or even pre-fight you know they've probably been friends at some point they probably share a beer you know but it's just all for figures it's all to get the viewers up and i guess that's to be expected you know it's yeah. all about the money it's all about the corporate greed but the difference with the generation games is that these fuckers are fighting for their lives. You know? mm. <laughs> They've been given a cheese grater and a bread knife, and it's like it's a fight to the death. You know what I mean? It's like there's there's no getting out. There's, there'll be no sort of hooking each other afterwards. This is it. This is the finale, and there will be blood, and there will be death. And mm. the question is, would people plug in to watch that? And yes, I think they would. <laughs> Which is like <laughs> it's a horrible thing to say, but <laughs> you know, against <laughs> everything we project, I think. Ah, oh, yeah. But anyway, that's quite taboo, isn't it? But yeah. Well, you seem to have a very well-developed sense of gallows humor. Are you a fan <laughs> of the late George Carlin? No, I'm not actually. No, I'm not. Oh. Um, no, okay. I know of them. But I definitely got a very dark, twisted sense of humor that we mentioned again in the prelude that I think just having that helps balance the dark and the light. And it just helps, you know, sort of, shed some light so you're not getting too weighed down with the heaviness with the darkness you're integrating with the shadow exactly yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely in a very tongue-in-cheek way which i think uh -huh. is why i tend to get away with quite a lot in my work well with all the high stakes physical activity in this book you might forget that the characters are all on the verge of turning 70 years old so how did you balance portraying the physical limitations of age with the demands of the intense action in the book? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's something I always have to be wary of because, you know, there's a tendency to get carried away mid-action. And there's only, you know, so far, muscle spray and tiger balm will get you in those sorts of situations. But look, I mean, it's quite a brutal, quite an awful story. 
But at the same time, I had so many guilty giggles writing it. <laughs> yeah, it, sound, it sounds mm-hmm. awful, but there's no better way, I think, to induce optimum performance than have one of those gray skins snarling and biting at the air, mm-hmm. chasing you down, you know, <laughs> ready to rip your innards out. It's a good question. But, you know, today, I mean, I know people that are 70 that run marathons. So, you know, given a little bit of training, <laughs> you know, there's a certain sort of you know, bandwidth of fitness that these guys would be able to get into, uh-huh. but subject to obvious limitations for sure. And that does come out in the story later on, sort of addressing their arthritis or back problems, uh-huh. which I think makes the whole thing, especially the assault course, seem quite hysterical, really. But as mentioned, it was an absolute riot to write. It really was. Mm. Well, oh, actually, to kind of backtrack a little bit, would it be a spoiler at all to kind of ask you exactly what the, I think you called them gray skins. Yeah. What exactly they were. Yeah. So again, it's, you know, I've been a bit cheeky here because we're looking at 20, 30 years ahead, but these are sort of ex-cons that have been put on death row and their only out is to be subject to experimentation and uh-huh. thus the gray skins. Okay. So the idea is that, you know, it sort of enhances all their darkness, what took them into crime in the first place, and they can just oh. let it all loose. They can run rampant chasing these poor old fuckers down. But does this get them out of their death sentence? No, it, this is just for kicks. <laughs> well, they, they, they get to live they, they get to live as part of the show. So they generally escape their death sentence, but obviously they're a gray skin for the rest of their lives. But, you know, for some, that's quite palatable, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Make that work. Yeah. Awesome. Well, the next story in the book is entitled, My Name is Brian. And it tells the story of a group of kids, primarily boys, who witness the brutal bullying of a new kid who, for the most part, takes the bullying in stride. The boy's name is Brian, hence the title, and he has a very strange demeanor. He's intelligent and pleasant to everyone, making him a prime target for a bully. The other boys in the story struggle with considerable guilt and shame, not only for failing to stand up for Brian, but also for allowing themselves to be coerced into participating in his bullying. So what led you to delve into the guilt and shame experienced by the other boys in the story? I love coming-of-age tales, and I think it's impossible to reflect back on coming-of-age without there being some aspect of bullying involved, whether that's be you as the victim or someone coerced into it or just the passerby that does nothing about it. So I wanted to explore and dissect the power that one person can have over a group of people. And we all know that happens small scale and large scale. And I just think it's quite interesting to dissect that. And I also wanted to, I guess, shift the burden onto the reader for this one and you know, the conclusion is quite explosive. And I wanted to sort of leave them to decide if the ending was justified or perhaps I've taken it too far. But it is, it's, you know, (laughs) bullying is, you know what I mean? (laughs) But bullying is one of those where you're either the victim, you've been coerced to it, a passerby, very rarely do people stand up to bullies. And, you know, I think I just wanted to let the reader sort of free fall into this environment and like I said, just leave them with that with that conclusion and uh sort of their <laughs> afterthoughts. Yeah. 
Well, one of the boys, in particular Tommy, I'm pretty sure it was Tommy, correct me if I'm wrong, really liked to envision himself as a warrior who would stand up to Richard, who is the bully, and save the day. However, when push came to shove, he always wimped out and fell into severe self-loathing. What do you think are some other specific emotional dynamics that kids go through when they're involved in any aspect of bullying? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, fundamentally, I wanted to deal with the fact that, you know, these kids aren't cardboard cutouts. They have feelings. So, you know, behind closed doors, how does their part in the bullying take effect? The shame, the self-loathing, which will induce these fantasies, you know, where I'll be looking at his posters of Karate Kid or Batman, whatever, and like, you know, run these scenes through his head of saving the day and running Mm. into the arms of his wannabe girlfriend. So, you know, I think we've all done that. We've all fantasized about being the hero, but very, very few of us actually do that. But I also wanted to explore, I do later in that story, the dynamics of being angry at the victim because you've been brought into their world, whether you like it or not, you are part of that world. You know what I mean? You know what I'm trying to get across? Mm-hmm. They are actually angry at the victim because they've been brought into it, which is kind of like, it's so bizarre. But it's real at the same time. You know, they don't have any choice. They can't escape this world. They're in Brian and Rich's world. So resentment for both parties. Yeah. Well, one thing you make clear about the bully, Richard, is that he himself is routinely beaten. And when he has been particularly beaten badly, which I assume is by his father, Everyone knows that Richard is going to be hell on wheels that day. So how does the story address the concept of empathy for someone who is both a perpetrator and a victim of violence? Yeah, I think it's impossible to read the story or a story like that without feeling sympathy for both parties. As I mentioned, this is an inescapable world. You know, Richard, the bully, can't escape his world. You know, he's got nowhere to go. He can't do that. Brian's got nowhere to go. The other people in the story have nowhere to go. They're in it, whether they like it or not. So I think there's an element of sympathy for everyone involved. It starts as a small ripple, but you know, it has sort of a butterfly effect of impact. So I think the whole idea behind that story was to show just this claustrophobic like, effect that bullying has and how it can make the world seem so small and, you know, Does that make sense? Like Mm -hmm. he can basically take everything else away from his kids, all their freedom and imprison them in this world. And there's no escape for any of them. So I think there's sympathy for all to some extent. Do you think there would have been, I mean, even though I think most people know that hurting people hurt people and just being a bully or being abusive doesn't exist in a vacuum. Do you think if you would have left out the part that speaks about, oh, when he's gotten a beating at home, watch out because when he comes to school, it's going to be hell for everybody. And then there's one other part that I'm not going to say what it is because I don't want to reveal too much. But those two instances that I can think of off the top of my head that indicate, like kind of put it out there that he is being beaten at home. If you hadn't included those, do you think people would still have sympathy for Richard? I think so. I think so. I don't think a bully is... Well, it's a tough question, isn't it? Are people born murderers? <laughs> I think it, it, stems, it stems from somewhere. 
mm. whether that be childhood influences or, you know, or an external event. I just think it's very difficult at that young age to just form an opinion that that's all there is to them. You know, that's not the case, you know. So I think even without that, there would be some element of sympathy. You know what I mean? We're all human. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very difficult to just feel 100% resentment towards somebody without sort of, you know, knowing there's something that lies you know, beneath the layers, beneath the mask. There is someone that used to be vulnerable within that. Mm-hmm. So I think it would have been there. But I just wanted to, you know, raise that just to make sure that, you know, it did hit home, mm-hmm. really. Yeah, I had NJ Gallegos on the show, and she was talking about how when children exhibit antisocial behavior until they're of a certain age, which maybe is 18, maybe it's older than that, they will not actually say, like diagnose them with antisocial personality disorder. They call it oppositional defiant disorder. The reason being is because they're not fully developed, so they can't for certain say that they're a sociopath. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes absolute sense. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, as mentioned, it's like, there's a reason, there's a reason Mm -hmm. that he's like that. And I think readers would drill into that anyway. Well, the bullying in the story is much more emotionally and physically brutal than just calling somebody a silly name and giving them a swirly. Richard actually threatens Brian with a deadly weapon at one point, and the other kids in the story genuinely worry that he might use it. And the kind of bullying that was going on when I was growing up wasn't quite that severe. But to be honest, I would probably rather have taken that than be in high school at a time when there was social media. Because people can do things to you with social media that will make you wish you were dead. And kids and adolescents sometimes do kill themselves. So what made you want to write a story about, for lack of a better term, low-tech bullying? (laughs) For that exact reason, actually, Vince, I've written a story about sort of modern day bullying and it left a very sort of bitter taste in my mouth because Mm. my daughter's been a victim of that a few months ago. I think it's just too real for me. Whereas the 80s is much more pleasurable, sounds weird, in a way, because in addition to evoking those feelings of those memories of, you know, bullying occurring, it also has that comfortable nostalgia for me. So whenever I get the chance, you know, I'd like to go back to the 80s when I was a kid and talk mm-hmm. about the arcades, talk about bubblegum, whatever, the fashion, the music. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's really comfortable for me. So if I ever get a chance to explore that, you know, you don't need to ask me twice. I just love 80s nostalgia. You know, it's because, you know, while bullying did happen, there were so many wonderful things about the time as well. And yeah, so... For that reason, modern day bullying scares me. It's terrifying. And, Mm. you know, as you mentioned, it can push people to very dangerous situations. So, yeah, it it scares me that. And I don't like writing anything that leaves too much of a heavy feeling on my shoulders. Gotcha. Well, to take a lighter note, there is a lot of fart humor in this story. <laughs> which there is, there is a lot of fart humor. Which, uh, <laughs> Brian produces gas that could peel the paint off a wall. So was this uh, meant to clue the reader into Brian's underlying condition, which I will not talk about? 
Or were you just trying to add a little comic relief? And can you expand on that? I think it's a little bit of both, Vince, to be honest with you. As I mentioned before, I take things with a heavy sense of humor. But I did want to sort of drop a few clues that maybe this boy isn't everything (laughs) he's cut out to be. He's got quite an appetite as well, which could account for a lot of the wind happening. But um, Yeah. yeah, the sort of sheer sort of after effect to the devastation he can create from a <laughs> single nuclear fart. fallout. <laughs> so, yeah, I think we know this kid isn't just the sort of run-of-the-mill cheetah-eating boy. So, yeah, I, I did want to sort of drop a few clues in there. But I just like having fun with that kind of stuff. There's a scene from a Stephen King book. I can't remember which one it was. I always forget, but where, like, the crowd starts vomiting on each other in this pie-eating contest. Does that ring any bell? Did you read much Stephen King? I can't remember the Not story now. Not a whole lot. Yeah, it might be the body. So, look, it's a bit of fun. It's a bit of a light relief for me. You know, if I'm writing a heavy story with heavy connotations, I like to incorporate a sense of humor. I'd like to take readers on a bit of a roller coaster where they get comfortable with the humor and mm. then I'll take the floor away. And it's like they're not too <laughs> sure how to react to that situation, you know? Uh-huh. So that's when I'm at my best. That's when I'm giggling behind the keyboard and I know I'm sort of writing stuff that will have reader impact, really. Yeah, I was envisioning green flammable fumes coming out of his ass <laughs> yeah. yeah pretty much pretty much yeah yeah i get and i wanted the <laughs> yeah it's a shame that story there's not like a scratch and sniff or something like that because there's sort of devastation you um, could make it happen uh <laughs> maybe it's not too late yeah yeah absolutely i think they tried that in the movies at some point didn't they sort of like you know pumping out fumes or but anyway it was a fun journey that one but obviously just to break up the sort of heavy connotations in the story as well Hmm. Well, there is a character named Shane in the story who is Richard's little toady, kind of like in the film A Christmas Story. So is that something that's true in real life? Because I honestly don't remember. And what exactly would you say that particular character archetype adds to a story that involves a bully? Well, I think it's true because I think there's always like a second in command. You know, I think a lot of this story is directed towards my hatred of middle management. You know, that's what I have in mind when I'm writing this story, Uh, just allowing all that resentment to come out. But there's always one that's sort of like a bit of a yes, yes man or yes girl in terms of facilitating that divide from totally fucking outrageous to reality mm. where they sort of accommodate that person's behavior or perhaps encourage it in some way. So I, I think in this case, it was just there to facilitate, you know, the jump from normal bullying to the outrageous Mm. in the same way you know i think stephen king often did that sort of that group mentality of bullying and so forth but yeah most of this i had middle management in mind when i was writing this two ic (laughs) second in command get out of it go away (laughs) well once again the ending of the story which i won't reveal was very unexpected and speaks to a very specific genre of literature. And the general rule of thumb that I hear from authors is to write what you love. Uh, But that's not always the case sometimes. So do you write what you love or are what you like to write and what you like to read two different things? And can you expand on that? I write what I'd like to read, which is a bit of a cop-out, isn't it? But yeah. I've written 185 short stories and only 10 of those have been for call-outs. So generally, as a rule of thumb, 
I write something that's going to be entertaining for me. That this the most important thing as a writer is that you're having fun during the process. Because if you're not, the reader's not going to be having fun either. So yeah, but I'm drawn towards certain stories. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I like to experiment. But I think after a while, it's, I think it's the same sort of ingredients that go into all of my stories, but just in different measures, you know? So we have the dread, we have the surprise, we have the humor, we have the suspense, and we have the sucker punch of an ending. Mm. It's generally the same, you know, put them in a bowl, but I'll use different measures at times. But that's generally what makes a story entertaining for me. It's just got to have all of those elements, really. And actually, I think I may have misremembered that, what you said, write what I would like. Say it again. What was it? I write what I'd like to read. Yeah, what you'd like to read. Yeah, I think that may have been it, and I misremembered it. So how far is what you'd like to read from what you normally read? Because I'm assuming when you say what I'd like to read is something that doesn't exist? Well, there are certain elements that align with you know, my approach. I mean, I like early King for that reason, you know, because it's quite raw and and fun and punchy. That's the way that I like to write. But generally, as a rule of thumb, I'm quite open to reading any sort of story. I've just recently joined a book club and, you know, we've read everything from, you know, Terry Pratchett to James Herbert. So I'm quite open to that. But when it comes to my writing, I do stick to those ingredients that are entertaining for me and, yeah, I tend not to write with a with a set of boxes to tick. Mm. I think that's when rigidity can really, really strike you and, you know, when the sort of freedom, you know, becomes more confined. But look, I'll read anything, but I'll definitely write according to those ingredients. Yeah. So are you a pantser? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Ninety five percent of my stories are written by the seat of my pants. Absolutely. Because as I mentioned before, that's why you probably picked up on that. The journey has to be interesting and fun for me. If I know where the story is going at every single page, that's just, you know, I can't enjoy that. I can't enjoy it. It's got to be a journey for me. And it has to carry surprises for me as well. And I have to allow the characters to grow. And I like to put characters that you don't feel comfortable in putting together. I like to sort of induce that and just see what happens, you know, sort of witness the explosion. My writing pal, Eric Hansen, taught me that is something he picked up in screenplay is just like, you know, those situations that wouldn't normally arise, experiment with them, try them and see what happens. But yeah, I never know what's going to happen in a story when I begin. And that could be, you know, from looking at a picture, a smell, a conversation with a client, a dream. It could be from anywhere, but I'd never, ever write knowing what the last paragraph is going to be because that would immediately take all creative, fun, everything out of the process for me that I enjoy as writing. Okay. Well, the next story, the final story, is the namesake of the collection, The Naughty Corner. And the one word I would use to describe this story is surreal. It was like an episode of The Twilight Zone, which is a comparison that a character actually makes in the story. And it's about a young couple, Frank and Sheila, and their 13-year-old son, Charlie, who moved to a nice, and this is the part I didn't understand, was it a full-on gated community, or was it like this one private gated drive? No, it was a private gated community. Uh, So I I have quite a lot of these where I live in Australia, where they're segmented off from the rest of the community, you know, behind 
huge, you know, grand houses and iron gates and whatnot. Yeah. Okay. Well, so they move to one of these nice gated communities after Sheila lands a cushy job making good money at a law firm. However, when they meet some of the neighbors, Nick, Patricia, and their daughter, Veronica, they find them extremely creepy for multiple reasons. The pomp, ceremony, and protocol of the wealthy can kind of turn them into people that behave almost as if they're not human. In your view, what are the psychological effects of wealth and status on an individual's behavior and sense of self? That's a good question, but I'll just reflect back a little bit. You know, there is no way I could have plotted something like The Naughty Corner. That story is absolutely off the charts. So yeah. if I was to try to sit down and sort of plot that, you know, it would be something entirely different. So I think that's a perfect example of, you know, the sort of surprises, the plot twists and everything else involved what makes it interesting for me. But in terms of the question, I mean, this story, I think, is about the adage that, you know, money can buy anything, you know, protection, immunity, happiness, freedom. But what's quite interesting was I wanted to explore the character of Patricia, who's the sort of matriarchal type. And money essentially corrupted her entire childhood. It totally worked against her. But at the same time, how it's in her blood that she's gravitated back towards wanting to have that aspect of money being able to buy her power, control, freedom, everything that worked against her in her early years. So I think I just wanted to really explore the toxicity of money and just how vile it can be when brought into people's lives. Yeah. And it puts you in the position to be surrounded by yes men and yes women or yes people, yeah. <laughs> so to speak, absolutely. where you're not able to be self-aware anymore because you don't have a gauge of reality when you've got people that are just trying to kiss your ass all day. So absolutely right. Yeah. Which takes it back to sort of James or baby James in the first story. Mm -hmm. It's just false ego. It's, it's wind beneath the wings, but it's like, take all those yes men away, all the glossiness away. You know, mm -hmm. that's what I like to do. I like to sort of explore what lies behind all that, behind the mask. Yeah. Well, the matriarch of the strange family that you just alluded to, Patricia informs them about the community rules. And she doesn't explicitly say that they have to follow them, but implies that once they read them, they will want to. This subtly off-putting attempt to dictate their behavior without directly doing so is an effective narrative device because it creates a sense of unease within the reader. What is it about this plot device that causes this sense of unease? I think everyone hates confrontation. Everyone despises it. They'll avoid it at all costs. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think the reader placing themselves in their situation. They've arrived. They don't want to upset anyone. This is their new life. This is a new lease for them. You know, everything's going their way. So they don't want anything to impact that negatively. So I think they're very vulnerable in that way. But then to be given a set of rules on their first day mm -hmm. uh, or guidelines, as they only yeah. refer to them as, which is a funny term to apply to something that's been scrawled onto parchment. Um, <laughs> we know instantly they're not just guidelines, you know. Yeah. yeah, so I think we know as well instantly that this family is not normal, that there is something very sinister about them. Mm -hmm. And although it's done in a sort of relatively subtle way, I think the undertones are there for the reader to pick up on that, 
this family is loco. And yeah, yeah the story is going to have some very uh, sinister developments, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost kind of like the way they were behaving. There was like some sort of implied threat, like the way the classic scenario yeah. of the uh, members of the mob going into a storefront. Wow, this is a nice place you got <laughs> yeah. here. I'd hate for something bad to happen to it, you know. <laughs> Absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely right. But it was obviously the family just trying to express their control, you know, that that this is the way it's going to be from now on, you know, Mm. and the sort of subtly, you know, imply, if you don't oblige, conform, things aren't going to turn out so well for you. Something bad might happen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the, well, I was about to say rules. The guidelines are meant to enforce many things such as cleanliness, godliness, and respect. But they particularly focus on maintaining a level of quiet in the neighborhood that you could hear a pin drop. So why was this so important to the strange residents? I'd like to give a really pretentious answer. All right. But I don't. This is a bit of a guilty pleasure, Vince, to be honest with you, because I've got a bit of a phobia against lawnmowers and DIY and all that kind of stuff. I find it grates on me quite heavily. And, you know, to be honest, we actually fantasize about living down Melody fucking Drive for that reason, just for the (laughs) fact that I know if I sit down to write, I'm not going to have a lawnmower going off somewhere. There's not going to be... The one thing I really have a phobia against is the bass of music that you can feel. You know, it's almost inaudible, but just enough to sort of really get the temple throbbing in your head. So for me, it was quite cathartic to imagine this place where DIY was only acceptable between certain hours of the day on a Sunday. I thought, well, you can plan around that. That's great. So for me, it was almost the romanticist ideal. As a writer, that would be perfection. I'm a big fan of peace. I love peace. So for mm. me, it was very crikey. Yeah, I sound really weird now coming up from that. But <laughs> but yeah, things like that, lawnmowers, DIY, just sort of, it's, yeah, shiver down my spine stuff. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, there is a lot of pie involved, specifically cherry pie. And my assumption is that you chose cherry pie specifically for its sexual connotation as there was sex tied to the pies. So what other forms of symbolism and metaphor did you use in the story that I may have missed? You might be reading too much into that. <laughs> well, well, there is, there okay. is because well, no, well, no, cr- cherry pie was definitely, was definitely, it was, it was quite a heavy connotation, wasn't it? I've, oh, used, okay. I've used cherry pie. Okay. Look, it is my favorite pie as well. So there is that. It is my favorite pie. But also... Well, it, um, does sex come with it? Is that why it's your favorite? <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, I could go downhill quickly, couldn't it? But I did use the cherry pie in the first book I launched called Nana. So that was a novella and that cherry pie had very sort of sinister connotations in the same way. So I think I'm just drawn towards that. But I think it's just, I like to use objects that appear sort of innocent and then assign to them some sort of evil or sinister (laughs) aspects, like the licorice straps, for example. I had someone read that story and then next day they were in a candy shop and they saw the licorice straps and it was like it sort Just of ruined it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So again, that's a guilty giggle for me. It's sort of like attaching some guilty, <laughs> guilty <laughs> connotation to something that, you know, is seemingly so innocent. Yeah. So when it came to being terrorized, you didn't spare the sun from psychological manipulation and abuse, which I think heightens the terror of the book tremendously. And I'm a big fan of fearless writers, but 
I'm curious to know, have you received any negative feedback regarding that particular aspect of the story? Because I know a lot of authors like uh, Aaron Beauregard, Daniel Volpe, I think Triana has even said that there's people that like to read books that are labeled horror or extreme horror or even have trigger warnings and still like to like pronounce judgment yeah. from the rooftops toward them. <laughs> I'm ready for it. I haven't had any negative feedback yet, but I'm ready for it. Okay. I think at some point it's inevitable because The Naughty Corner, it doesn't sound like a particularly adult tale, but I think it might sort of hold a few shocks here and there <laughs> for, yes, the unprepared reader. But I, I do think a lot of it depends on context and delivery. And mm -hmm. as I mentioned before, I do tend to get away with a lot of stuff because I do have that element of humor running through that sort of tongue-in-cheek element to it i mean the, i think the way i handle a particular type of story was sort of with kids gloves at the same time so it was a very sort of serious part of the story but the analogy with the roller coaster ride mm -hmm. the sort of the fear but also the elements of like pleasure involved mm -hmm. you know that part of the story that i'm talking about probably oh yeah <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it definitely pushes boundaries, I think. I definitely think it approaches the line. But so far, no negative feedback on that. But a lot of what I write is an amalgamation of the experiences I've had at that time in my life. And, you know, life is life. Mm. You, know, you will be subject to certain situations, some of them scary, you know, some of them confrontational, some of them where you're quite confused, you don't really understand. And I think that is definitely a part of the story. You know, it definitely approaches the line, but, mm. you know, something similar sort of happened to me. Therefore, it's life, you know. Gotcha. So I, I don't shy away from stuff like that. I don't like extreme horror. I'm not a fan of it. There's an audience for it. But at the same time, I don't write within limitations. I don't think about limitations. I don't think about ticking boxes when I'm writing any boxes at all. You know, mm. as I mentioned, this has got to be a journey. It's got to be unbridled. It's got to be, you know, it's got to be freedom for me. Otherwise, I'll stop enjoying it. Yeah. Yeah. Let me make that clear, listeners at home. I am not implying that his work is splatterpunk. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is quite risque in certain places. And, yeah. you know, there are elements that will have the reader contemplating or thinking or feeling quite maybe guilty in a way. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, but yeah, it's all part of the journey, isn't it? You'll have to find out, readers. <laughs> You'll have to find out. Spend some time in the naughty corner. Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Well, the prospect of being someone's slave under the threat of violence and mental terror is one of the main, if not the main, themes of the story. So... What inspired you to focus on such a psychologically terrifying prospect? And I couldn't quite come up with a fair description as to the, the type of bondage that they're in psychologically. I feel like there's a word or a strand of just perfectly eloquent words that would explain what's like floating in my head, but I just can't get out of my mouth. Maybe you can... Uh... I don't think there is, Vince. I don't think there is a succinct sentence that would explain what's happening. You know, for me, I wanted the reader to feel confused. I wanted them to feel misdirected, disoriented. That's a whole part of the story. Mm. And that goes for a lot of the stuff I write. You know, people have described it as a bit of a fever trip where, you know, 
there's not a linear path they're on. There are going to be elements of guilt, confusion, fear. Mm. And that's what I want to achieve. I want to stimulate people to think about um, my stories, my characters. So I don't think I can do that for you. But it was, again, just exploration of the impact, the control someone have over a group without even lifting a finger. It's that power, you know, it's like the Mansons or whatever. You know what I mean? It's out there. It's real. Yeah. And I just find it quite fascinating. So I definitely wanted to just, you know, to dissect that really. Gotcha. Well, as always, I will not spoil the end of the story, but I wanted to know, will there be a continuation of this story? Because I really love the eerie contained world you've created in this gated neighborhood. You know, never say never. It's not something I have planned for the near future. But that said, I took one of my old novellas down called Hope Wharf, which is one of my favorite stories. So it was sort of bittersweet, but I could see in the same way you can, that sort of potential to expand it into like a full-length novel environment type situation. So that's what I'll be working on 2024. But there's absolutely no reason why I couldn't come back to that world and, you know, expand on that. Because I enjoyed spending time down Melody Drive. It was traumatic. Mm-hmm. But it was also sort of, you know, an interesting character study. And um, so, yeah, I never say never. I mean, there's lots of work. I mean, I've written 185 short stories, 15 novellas, two novels. You know, there's lots of stuff I can go back to and sort of explore and give a bit more sort of time to. So, yeah, never say never. Yeah. Okay. Well, you mentioned in the author's note that you did not start writing until the ripe age of 45, a detail I really latched onto considering I didn't start podcasting until I was 41. I had always wanted to do a podcast, and once I hit my 40s, it gave me a sense of urgency to get started. So what was the impetus for you to begin writing at the age of 45? So we'll just throw this back to you. So what was the actual trigger that sort of finally pushed you over the edge to do it? What was what was it? You know, I don't know. It was the weirdest thing. I was sitting down with my, she was my fiance at the time, my wife now. Yeah. And I mean, I've always wanted to do a podcast, but like I was just sitting there and I don't even know if I had really been thinking about it for that long. I just looked over at her and I was like, I want to start a podcast. <laughs> and she was like, what? <laughs> Like, you don't really even, you're not social. You don't really like talking to people. <laughs> it's like, I don't care. So you've never, you've never hinted towards it before, really. That was just, it was mm. just something that you sprung on a, uh, yeah, you, came you, out you just the got the bug. Yeah, yeah. Okay. How interesting. All right. Look, it's not too dissimilar. You know, I, I came out of uni with a degree in maths and, you know, because back in the eighties, anything else like English or anything was pretty much frowned upon. So I took the safe route. You want to be a banker or an accountant or, you know, geez. But I ended up in sales. I don't really know how. It's a horror story in itself. But like uh, three decades (laughs) went by without me doing anything creative at all. And my head was in the sand, just doing the job, Mm -hmm. you know, getting home, drinking a bottle of wine every night, blah, blah, blah. You know, sort of just to numb that creative beast inside. Mm -hmm. But the voice that in my head was one of my old English teacher. And she always said, you know, you need to follow this. You should pursue this um, because you have huge potential. And at the time, you just, you know, you just kind of, you don't worry about it. You know, everything's short term when you're young. You don't think about sort of long term consequences of anything. But it's been at the back of my head for 30 years. And it got to a stage where I started talking to my wife about it. You know, it started coming up in conversation. And I think it was maybe fear that prevented me 
or just the the thought of not having enough time to do it. I was just, mm. you know, putting all these boundaries up. And my wife finally said, Towsy, you're boring the shit out of me. Just go and do it. And I started and I wrote up the first few stories. The first story was about people biting each other's ears off. It, it was fucking awful. It was terrible. But I got a few stories out of the way. You know, I got rid of a lot of the bile in my head. And then, you know, I, I wrote a story that I thought, actually, that's half decent. That's not bad. So I sent it off. And a few days later, you know, I got a, an acceptance and like $75. Mm-hmm. I thought, this is all right, isn't it? This is like free therapy. Well, it's not just free. I'm actually getting paid for sort of self-therapizing <laughs> in a way. Um, well, that's $75. It might as well have been gold bullying to me because I don't know. It just sets something off. And from that point forward, I've been prolific. But for me, initially, it was all about therapy. It was all about writing that trauma out of me, getting rid of all that bile. Mm-hmm. And after doing nothing for 30 years, it was like... Yeah, someone had just corked me. It was like, bang. I I was just obsessed. I was an addict. And yeah, those first five, six years were prolific. But I think, you know, whilst it contrastingly put a pressure on my relationship and and other stuff, Mm. I think I needed to go through that period to get to the stage where I actually think now I'm producing some decent stuff. And I think now I feel comfortable in calling myself an author after going through that process. And so how long have you been writing now? Six years now. Six years. So so you went at it in a fevered pitch and then slowed down because you're now to the point where you feel like you've got the feel of it. like Relatively proficient. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I went through a phase of just sending out short stories. Uh I wrote about 100 short stories before I wrote my first novella. I didn't just want to go out there and write a book. I didn't want to go out there and put something half-assed together. So I wanted to slowly work towards it. So I started sending out my short stories to amateur publications, then to semi-pro, and then to pro. And after a while, I sort of gained enough confidence to say, right, I'm going to turn my hand to longer fiction. I think I'm ready. And then I wrote a number of novellas. And then I thought, okay, I'm now ready for a novel. And the transition there was really bloody helpful because, you know, writing a 60,000, 70,000 novel is a different beast to writing a short story. But I felt fully prepped. You know, the tools were all sharpened. And I did not find it that challenging. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I'd have attempted to write something, you know, I'd have come out with a novel, it would have been terrible. It would have been sort of like, you know, the structure of it awful. But now I feel comfortable in doing that. And I do miss writing short stories, but I feel like all my time now has to be put towards those longer pieces, really, if I'm to establish myself as a proper author. Gotcha. You also mentioned that your work has been turned into audio dramas on the No Sleep podcast, which really interested me because believe it or not, there are three iterations of the Dark Mind podcast one of which was audio dramas. Now, nothing as detailed and high-level production as No Sleep, but I did used to do that. So could you tell me about that experience and how you came to collaborate with No Sleep and what it was like to hear your work dramatized? I've been a big fan of No Sleep for ages. I'd fall asleep listening to some of those stories. Mm. And I just think that they're sort of just so professional. The way it was all put together, it was just quite amazing. And I think it was just the prospect of bringing my story to life. 
definitely appealed. So I wrote a, a few stories, and obviously the first ones were rejected. And I think it was Olivia White, who I think is one of the producers of the show, was kind enough to come back to me because I think she'd seen a few stories coming through and give me some really constructive feedback mm. in terms of how the story needed to be more prepped towards audio than how one would normally approach a story. So that was very, very helpful. And, you know, after a couple more rejections, I got my first one on there. And since then, I think I've had about 10 or 11 stories on the No Sleep podcast. They just do such a wonderful job. I mean, the cast is amazing. Production is amazing. David Cummings, everything about it is just top notch. It was just something that was on my bucket list that I could cross off. And what I said before, in terms of writing novels, I do really miss writing short stories. And I think I'll have to dip into at some point, a few more of those in the coming years, because you can be done in two weeks with a, with a short story, with a good one. Mm. Whereas a novel, you know, as soon as you start, it, it's a marathon, <laughs> you know, you're climbing a mountain, but you don't know how big the peak is. Yeah. You've got no idea. Whereas a short story, you know, four, five thousand words, I can do that within two weeks and have it prepped and ready to go. But I do miss writing short stories because they were fun. So I might have to revisit those. But yeah, No Sleep Podcasts are amazing at what they do. And there's some other really good ones as well. Like Tales to Terrify is another good one. The Grey Rooms was running at a time that was pretty good as well. But it's just fun. Maybe a bit of an ego boost as well, Vince, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, why not? Very good. Well... As you were talking about your writing trajectory up until recently, you've published short stories and novellas, and now you have your first upcoming novel entitled Chasing the Dragon. Can you tell us a little bit about this story? Yeah, absolutely. I, I haven't, again, got the synopsis with me, so this is going to be a half-assed kind of approach. But okay. the main protagonist is called Simon Dooley. And he has grown up in a very sort of conformist environment. His mother is very matriarchal, very domineering. And, you know, all it would take to trigger his mother would be if someone parked their car you know, outside their house, if there was loud music, the sound of a lawnmower, anything along those lines, <laughs> it would trigger her. <laughs> and reverting back to Simon, if he left a cup out, if he left crumbs on the table, she would go ballistic. Anyway, cutting out a few really important plot twists and that would give some of the story away. The only way that Simon Dooley can end the chaos, that's what his mother used to say, it was, a, you know, she used to get overwhelmed by the chaos, so much chaos around, you know. The only way that he can end or put silence to his mother's voice that is constantly cycling through his head is to end the chaos. So in a bit of desperation, he gets a, a cape made by mm -hmm. the local uh, chain-smoking tailor and sets out in the world trying to end the chaos. And that starts from you know, picking litter up after people, getting them to park properly, getting people to pick up after their dogs. And he soon gets sucked <laughs> into the drug world, dealing with the drug lords of town. And uh -huh. things take a dark turn very, very quickly. And he falls in love. And it's traumatic it's been described as a cross between uh, Sin City meets Carrie meets West Side Story. Make of that what you will, but it's definitely a genre mashup of everything I've written. Horror, thriller, suspense, drama, dark romance, humor. It's all in there, and it's my baby. Really, those six years have been working towards putting out this first novel, and it's my best work. And 
yeah, so far the ARCs have had, well, the feedback from the ARCs has blown me away. So I'm stoked. I'm so excited to get this out there in March for sure. Well, you mentioned that you'd be willing to sell your soul to the devil to write full time, which is something I can relate to in the realm of podcasting. What does your writing schedule look like and how do you balance it with your day job? I don't. This is the biggest struggle for me as a writer. You know, I get in the shower in the morning, I'm chanting to myself, you know, I need a movie deal, need a movie deal, need something where I can take work off for a year and just write the next bestseller or what have you. So I'm constantly charging myself up about that. The schedule is just when I can, you know, I've got two kids, I've got a mortgage, I've got bills to pay. So, you know, you don't have that luxury of smoking cigars, you know, wearing your dressing gown and putting out words is just the case of when I can squeeze it. And with that, you've got the pressure of maintaining a relationship, of being there and present for your kids. Man, it's a struggle. It is. It's huge. Yeah. So I do struggle with that very much so. I haven't really found a secret recipe in terms of the correct balances yet, because those times that do become free, you're not always in that writing mode. So yeah, everything's got to sync. And finding those windows is very challenging. Mm. Well, is there anything you avoid because you believe it stifles your creativity? Yes. Lawnmowers. No, yeah, you mentioned the lawnmowers. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep coming back to this, man, because it doesn't take much to put me off. But that's why I was fantasized about Melody fucking Drive. I think I built that whole gated community just for my benefit, you know. Mm. It'd be nice if you can just slip into those pages and just disappear behind the window of um, one of those houses. But yeah, I mean, uh, it's got to be quiet, peaceful. I've got to like have several coffees before I begin. So there's a routine, but that again is in combat with the opportunities because you don't have the luxury of preparing yourself, you know, because you don't have that much time to really set those preparations. So yeah, peace and quiet is generally really good, but that's challenging. Well, which book dramatically altered your view of what could be accomplished with the written word? So I, yeah, I, again, I could draw to being pretentious, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to say <laughs> straightforward. I think I was mid-20s and I read The Talisman, which is one of the Stephen King books I missed when I was a kid. It was a collaboration with Peter Straub. And you know what? I remember that one just because it took me from being in my mid-20s to being 12 years old again. There's so much sort of awe and wonder involved in that book. There's so much magic that you can't help but feel like a child when you're within those pages. And that's something I try and aspire to when I'm writing. I try and, you know, introduce that jolt to readers, that nostalgic kickback to when they might be a kid or to a certain situation. But for me, that book, it just transported me into another time. And I think that's really fucking powerful. Yeah. Yeah, for me, I know John Grisham isn't exactly like this pioneer in literature. There's people that have just done crazy stuff with literature, but I say the client. And the reason is, is up until that point, would I be like 14 years old when that came out? I hadn't really read novels per se. I'd read like the Christian stuff, I guess, that I was allowed to read at the Christian school that I went to. And I didn't really understand why people read novels. And I bought that novel at an airport because it basically had the movie cover on it. And I wanted to see the movie. I was like, oh, maybe this is 
like reading a comic book or something, you know, <laughs> I didn't oh, know okay. what to think. Yeah. And so when I read that, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe you can do this with words. This is insane. Yeah. Yeah. It's remarkable, isn't it? And it's, it's obviously going to be different for everyone. Mm-hmm. But I think we've all got fond memories of a, of a book that takes us to a different place. The first book I ever bought, no, not bought, rented with my library card was Cujo. Mm-hmm the Stephen King book. And yeah, I had the same impact on me as the fact that, you know, I didn't realize books could do this. And, mm-hmm. you know, what an escape. Mm-hmm. And I remember fondly, this just sounds, again, quite strange, but listening to other kids having water fights outside during the summer holidays, and I'd be sat on my bed reading Cujo. And I was thinking, you know, these kids are missing out on this, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It's, it's just so powerful, isn't it? It's so powerful. Just the jolt you from reality into a different world. Mm-hmm. I understand what you meant about being pretentious though. I could have been like, Oh, it was the goldfinch yeah. by Donna Tart. It was. <laughs> yeah. No, I, <laughs> I, try, I try to stay away from that because I, because I, I can't, I can't continue to fake it. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I like what I like and that's it. If mm-hmm. I say, you know, and then you, you might say, oh, I've read that one. Let's explore the deep, you know, sort of like mm. the, the word, no. you know, meaning between the words. And it's like, oh, shit, I'm, I'm screwed here. Listeners um, so at home, I, never, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> so I always try and stay within my limitations. Yeah. Yeah. I would have been like, yeah, I won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. Oh, well, what did you think about this? Oh, I mean, I haven't actually read it. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, the, 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 the introduction was really good. Yeah. yeah the prologue yeah. was quite interesting. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> the author's notes crushed it yeah Uh, absolutely (laughs) well what would you like to see more of and or less of in the genre of horror writing and even horror film again that's an interesting one isn't it because it's also a dangerous one to answer because it's like there's an audience for everything but i love old people horror i'm a massive fan (laughs) of old people i'm playing with the crusties i love that element so I'd love to see that. I think it is having a Mars resurgence. You've got that film, the movie Old People. I don't know if you've seen that one. No. It's, it's sort of semi-interesting. But I just think there's such brilliant characters to play with. I really do because <laughs> I have to say it. I mean, you know, I'm 50 now, but mm-hmm. I still feel like a kid, man. You know, I still want to laugh like I did in the school playground. I still want to have fun. But I think old people are interesting because... You know, we always associate innocence with them, but we know not everyone out there is innocent. Mm. We know that there are going to be some people out there that have got a shady past. Yeah. Behind those watery peepers and that gummy smile, there's something else going on. So I just love that aspect of seemingly so innocent, but then introducing a malevolence with old people. One thing, I hate slashes. Can't do slashes. I'm so fed up and bored of slashes. <laughs> I'd like to see a bit of a resurgence in the writing community towards cozy horror, the old school stuff, the slow build dread, the sucker punch sort of twist of an ending, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But that's just all personal ideals and sort of very selfish because that's the kind of horror I generally sort of tend to write most of the time. Yeah. Well, what is the life of Mark Taus like outside of writing? Pretty dull. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, look, I mean, when I, when I first moved to Australia, I tried everything. I was surfing. I was playing golf. But it's like those kind of pursuits, it takes sort of three, four, five hours out of the day. And mm-hmm. as soon as I discovered writing, this sort of magic world, there wasn't much room for anything else. You know, I mean, I'm quite a simple mind. I love a good whiskey. I love the stars. I love hiking. I love nature. I love spending time with my family. Outside of that, I'm pretty linear. But the writing for me is where I get to be anyone I want to be. And mm-hmm. that's where I tend to live through 
fantasies and live through other people's eyes, so to speak. So I'll be doing that until the day I die, for sure. Well, Mark, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Vince. As we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Yeah, buy Chasing the Dragon, because it's fucking amazing. Honestly, it's my best work. It's out for pre-order on Amazon Kindle now. And you can also pre-order, sorry, this is really me going into Mr. Cheese mode, but you can also pre-order through Erie River, the paperback and hardcover. And if you do that through their website, you'll also get a pretty fancy limited edition signed bookmark and book plate. But if you enjoyed any of my stuff today, I can promise Chasing the Dragon is something else entirely unique and uh, quite extraordinary. Sweet. All right. Well, listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Mark, thank you again for joining me. Thanks, Vince. Absolute pleasure. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday when I will be joined by a filmmaker and educator that mixes the immortality of the vampire with the mortality of the aging process. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.